You are listening to the final official Sasta podcast before Christmas with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings on Snapchat, and brought to you by the godfather of Sass himself, Jason Lemkin, at Jason LK on Twitter. Now, if you have not bought your loved one a Christmas present this year yet, and time is ticking, all is not lost. We've come to the rescue at Sasta, as there is no better present for a loved one than tickets to the official Sasta annual in San Francisco in February. Oh, yes, and when you use the code Drinks with Harry, those three words, Drinks with Harry, you'll get a staggering 20% off the ticket price and tickets to one of the greatest parties San Francisco has ever seen. The first of many mojito parties with me and Jason Lemkin. Get ready. So all you have to do is enter the code DRINKSWITHHARRY when you purchase your tickets and you will make a loved one very happy and take them to Sasta. However, to today's guest, and I'm thrilled to welcome David Hassel. Now, David is the founder and CEO of 15.5, the leading web-based employee feedback and alignment solution that's transforming the way employees and managers communicate. And they have backing from the likes of Matrix Partners, Point9 Capital, and many more leading investors. As for David, he was named the most connected man you do not know in Silicon Valley by Forbes magazine, and there's literally very few places this man has not been featured, with features in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Inc., Entrepreneur, Wired, Fast Company, and the Financial Post. I'd also like to say a special thanks to Josh Hanna at Matrix Partners for the intro to David today, without which the show would not have been possible. However, enough from me, and I'm now delighted to hand over to David Hassel, founder and CEO at 15.5. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. David, so fantastic to have you on the official Sasta podcast today. Thank you so much to Josh Hanna for the intro, but thank you, David, for joining me today. It is great to be here, Harry. Thanks. Now, I'd love to get started today by hearing a little bit about you and a two to three minute founding story of 15.5 and how the business really got off the ground in the early days. Yeah, great. So, you know, I've been an entrepreneur since I graduated college in 1998. Well, actually, I worked for a big company for about 10 months and got very, very clear that was not my path. And I went and started a company in the summer of 1999 doing internet advertising technology in New York City and built and grew that company, learned a lot about entrepreneurship through it over a period of seven years, but really got to the end of it, realizing that while I loved the practice of building the business, my heart wasn't really in the business itself and what we did. And I had this great idea that, you know, I should follow my passion rather than, you know, build a business for money. And I went and started a a kite surfing company down in uh, the Northeast of Brazil and started running kite surfing trips for folks from Europe and and the U.S. And, you know, got to live on the beach and bought a dune buggy and had this fantastic penthouse apartment on the beach in Fortaleza, Brazil. And that was really, you know, kind of a break from having been grinding for seven years. And I realized, well, you know, you can follow your passion, but if there's no money in it, that's not such a great future either. <laughs> so decided to come back to the Bay Area, and I think it was 2007. And I started consulting for CEOs. Always been passionate about entrepreneurship and the and the possibility and potential for what can be created in the world. And I knew that was the those are the folks I wanted to support. And I was doing what I call strategy day. So I'd work with with CEOs and their leadership teams any, anywhere from one to four times a year for an eight or nine hour session to get them really clear on their core why, why they existed, where they wanted to go you know, in the future in 10 years, three years, one year, what were the, the key strategic opportunities to go after in the next three months, and then how do you align the whole company to that? And I worked with about you know, 60 different CEOs over a couple of years. While I was in the inquiry of, well, you know, what do I want to build next? 
And so I was clear I wanted to support those folks. And I was also really clear that I wanted to build something utilizing my background in technology. I'm a technologist. I was a computer engineer by training and wanted to have a significant, meaningful, positive impact in the world. Because I realized when you get into a startup, if you're lucky, meaning it has some modicum amount of success, you're going to be in it for probably a decade, right? And so how many how many decades do you have in your life to really do something that matters? So I was, I was very careful about you know, choosing what was next. And literally, once I once I got clear on the criteria, I said, you know, I want to build a SaaS company. You know, the business model makes sense to me. I want something that's going to make a real meaningful impact in people's lives. I saw the communication and and culture and, and employee engagement challenges uh, with the CEOs that I was working with, and I wanted to focus on that. And and I just created this bullet point list of criteria. And literally within a week, a friend of mine told me about the idea for fifteen five. It was something he had rudimentally in- implemented in his company, and it traces all the way back to. Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, is something he used to do in his company back in the late 80s. In fact, Inc. Magazine wrote about it in the 1988 issue of Inc. Magazine. <laughs> I, I remember that one well, yeah. It was a great issue, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. A great issue, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Eight years and, before I was born. <laughs> right, exactly. And what, was fat, what I loved about that, that the article was the title was, uh, I'm sorry, Yvonne's out surfing. And, and that was actually the response the reporter kept getting every time he'd call to interview Yvonne. And so he said, well, you know, where you know, this guy's always out surfing. How is he running the business? And turns out that in in the article, you know, Yvonne said, "Look, I didn't start this company to have a, a you know a job where I go to work fifty hours a week, fifty weeks a year. You know, I'm, I want to be out in the field testing the gear, and I take half the year off to climb mountains and surf. And the way that I stay in touch with my team is this fifteen five practice, where I have every employee spend fifteen minutes a week writing a report that takes their manager no more than five minutes to read, and it creates this brilliant rhythm of communication from the bottom to the top of the company, and I know what's going on." On, even if even if I'm not there half the year, and so when I read that article, I said, "Well, you know, what CEO wouldn't want that superpower?" Sure, you could take half the year off. That's not exactly what everyone's going to do, but to to be informed no matter where you are with no effort, right, was the initial impetus for for fifteen five. And at the same time, make sure that every manager and every employee are having the right conversations on a regular basis, which improves trust and morale and and productivity throughout the whole company. So that was the impetus for for starting the the company. And I have to admit, I first became an admirer of yours after reading a post uh, that you wrote when you discovered someone that had not only ripped off the product that you had created with 15.5, but also your site and the copy. So, so talk to me about that, that experience and that competition and how that taught you to th- think about competition and how it should be viewed. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because we actually have quite a number of competitors now. We, we were very, very early to market when we launched our product in 2012 in the culture engagement space. In fact, we were you know probably one of two pioneers in that category. It didn't really even exist yet. And now, four, you know, almost you know, four years later, where there's quite a few, there's, there's a lot of companies focusing in and around what we're doing, and some doing very, very similar things. The difference here was that here was this company company that, that came out of nowhere and essentially put up a website that was took our copy word for word and changed the word here or there. And even some of like the graphical elements they just they just kind of recreated in their own in their own thing. And then had this incredible founding story about how this thing came to be, which obviously had no mention of us. And 
when we dug deeper, it turned out that the founder had tried to do something else and it had failed and they pivoted. And, you know, the result was this new product that was essentially mimicking ours that took them, you know, essentially three months, you know, three months to build from the time they pivoted, uh, even though he still stuck to the story that we had no influence over it. But what I did, you know, because it was, it just felt so inauthentic and disingenuine. You know, I put up a, a, a post on Medium, just putting the, the websites literally side by side so people could look and see like, oh my God, this is this is exactly the same. And I, I think from my standpoint, I think competition is great. I mean, if we didn't have the competitors we have right now, we wouldn't be as good as we are right now, right? We're we're constantly having to to innovate and stay focused on our customers and also be aware of what's happening in the, in the broader market. And I think it really drives innovation in a very, very positive way. Plagiarism and copying and then lying about how it happened is a, a very negative version of that. It's kind of the dark side of competition. And it happens all the time, you know, certainly. But I felt it important to, you know, to kind of call that out. Whereas, you know, we have, you know, three other three other competitors that we're we're all moving toward the same Go. center of gravity. Right, mm-hmm. like there, there's certain features and things that we we mimic in other products and whatnot. And we have our own versions of them. And, you know, we're coming to the same conclusions, and maybe there is inspiration, but there's not blatant plagiarism and ripping off. Do you think? So found, do you think founders approach competition in the right way today around you? You're you're in California, kind of tech yeah. hub. Do you think they do? You know, I think that there's 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 two ways to look at comp. Maybe there's probably actually three ways to look at competition. Right. So I think you'll find a lot of founders who have a very kind of fear-based approach to competition, right? They believe that the world is win-lose and it, it's like us against them and we have to kill them, right? And and there's there's almost like that mentality of there's only going to be one winner and we've got to be the best and, and whatnot and we've got to take down our competition. There's another philosophy that basically says that the world's abundant and rising tides lift all boats and, and there's there's enough for everybody. And, and if you're just unique and authentic to yourself, there can be a number of different players. And there's probably some truth to both sides of that, right? So like, you know, gains tend to accrue to the top three players in any category. And then there's a long tail after that. So so yes, there is some truth to in many markets, the top companies do accrue most of the gains. But I also I also believe if you're completely rooted in the the idea that, you know, we've got to kill the competition and 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 it's and it's a win-lose world, I think you can very quickly get disconnected connected from your deeper source of creative innovation and being connected to your customers. And that's where the kind of the third approach, which I, I, I look to like Apple as, you know, they're, they're, they're competitive often or historically, you know, maybe, maybe shifting now, but historically competitive with themselves, right? So they, they almost kind of ignored the competition, certainly being aware of it, but saying like, we're just going to be so connected to our customers and we're just going to keep innovating and putting ourselves out of business, right? And I think that that's, that's really something that I, uh, we try to strive to do. It's like when it, when I was a, a rower in college, we're in these eight-man shells on the Charles River in, in Boston. And the moment you looked out of the boat to see what was happening in the other boats, you've already lost the race, right? <laughs> so you've taken your eye off, you know, being with your team and rowing your own race. Now, certainly you have to have some awareness. That's why the coxswain's there. And he says, okay, you know, we're going to try to move on this boat and here's what the field looks like, but you got to stay in your boat and row your own race. And so what that looks like in business is, is being really, really connected to your customers, really caring about their 
success, right? And not just success with your product, but actually their success. Like if they could have what they want without having to transact with you, they'd, they'd do it. You're a stepping stone to getting them what they want in their lives and their business, right? So if you're really tuned into your customers and understand what they're trying to accomplish and just focus on that, you're going to create an amazing product. And if it's authentic to who you are and what you stand for and what you care about, it doesn't matter if you have competition because there's they're not going to be able to copy your essence. That's That was the big thing about you know this company that came out that I posted on Medium. They weren't going to be able to copy our essence. They could copy our features and our copy, but it wasn't the same soul, right? And people are attracted to authenticity. So that's the way I generally think about it in, in those different domains. You, you mentioned Apple there, talking about kind of their internal machinations and what drives them. I've heard you say before that you're particularly passionate about the meaning and purpose behind the business vehicle. So, so what yeah. do you mean by this statement and, and how does it really affect your, your thinking and approach to management and organizational structure and, and incentivization of the team? Yeah, that's a great question. We're a mission-driven company. As there's more of a move toward this in the business world now where, where companies are realizing that if you're if you're just in it to make money, right, you're missing out on 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 the bigger picture, right? That there's there's an opportunity now to to have a deeper purpose. Simon Sinek has done some great work. You've probably, you know, many people have seen his TED talk. If you haven't, it's well worth 15 minutes about, you know, start with why and that philosophy. Our our big driver at 15.5 is we believe that business can be a place for people to become their greatest selves. We Internally, we say, you know, our purpose is to create the space for people to be their greatest selves. Externally, we talk about it in business speak as say, you know, we want to bring out the best in people at work. And and we really believe that. I mean, in our organization, most of our employees will say, I believe I'm a better version of myself than I was a year ago because of having worked here. And we want to deliver that experience to our customers through our product. And so it's 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 something that is is kind of a deeper meaning for what we're doing. It's like, yes, we want to build a thriving business, but building a thriving business gives us the opportunity to deliver that purpose even more on a bigger scale, right? Can I ask, how, yeah. do, you, how do you create an environment that is so encouraging of such self-development and such harmonization, if that's a word, and such a kind of happy culture for the business? I don't think there's any one answer. Again, this comes back to like what's authentically true to, to you. I think you have to start with getting really clear on what your purpose is, right? What your values are, and then finding like-minded people to do that. It just so happens that, you know, some of my values are around that learning and growth. And one of our values is always be learning and growing. Another value is cultivate health and vitality. So we don't really do beer and pizza, but we'll do like people, we don't bring in like green juice and, you know, people are competing each, with each other on Fitbit and things like that. It's like we attract people who share those values and there's no right or wrong way to do it. In our sense, I think part of it is 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 actually getting outside of the normal norms of thinking about people uh, and employees. For a long time, we've talked about human resources as this name that we use to describe what we're doing inside companies in regards to people. Now there's a shift to people and culture. But human resource is really interesting. If you, if you look at the, the definition of resource, a resource is something that you use to transform into value that in the process may be consumed or made unavailable, right? You burn up resources, right? So why are we thinking about people like resources like, you know, coal or oil that we're going to burn up and then when they're done, we're going to, you know, get some more. And even when you say people are our greatest asset, which has a great intention behind it, an asset is something that can be owned or controlled to create value. Most people I know don't want to really be owned or controlled to create value for somebody else. And so we start with the mindset of, okay, we're bringing a group of human 
human beings together to to work on this shared purpose, who actually have an alignment of the mission, who have an alignment of the values. And every one of us, you and I included, have greater potential in our future than we do today if we're given the right ecosystem and environment to step into that. So your question is, how do you create that? Well, first of all, you have to have the mindset that people can grow and learn. And imagine this. Imagine if every organization took on the idea that I'm sitting on a gold mine here. I've got 100 people in my company who have 20 50%, 100% more capacity next year if I create the right systems for them to step into that. Imagine now you're getting 20%, 50%, 100% more output from the same group of people. And those that same group of people attribute their growth and success to you. They're not going to go anywhere else. That's so uncommon. I think the key, the key there is kind of just alignment of hunger to learn and self-develop. I'm intrigued how you, how you select the individuals and how you identify them in the hiring process as being kind of characteristics of hungry for self-development and hungry for progression in themselves. Yes, you really nailed it. That's, that's one of the things, right? So again, you know, our, our value of our always be learning and growing or our, you know our value of cultivating health and vitality which i believe is is a is a predecessor an important piece to kind of folks who are really going to have the energy to do the learning and growth we we listen we don't come outward and say hey do you have this value right we we ask people to tell us stories about their their lives and their past work history and how they approached certain problems and how they acted in tough situations what was it like working with their manager what did they accomplish at their last role? What were some of their greatest successes and why? You know, what are they most proud of in their lives? And and you listen between the lines, who we believe is is already on that path. It's much it's much easier to to find people who are already aligned with it than try to realign somebody who has maybe a different worldview or a different orientation. Is there a way to also, you said about the productivity gains that can be made from that. Is there a way to yeah. kind of accurately assess and measure the the happiness, the employee happiness and the consequent effect of that in terms of output and productivity? Yeah, it, it's a tough one. There are ways to measure, right? The answer is yes and no, <laughs> unfortunately. There are ways to measure your outputs, right? You, you, you want to be setting aggressive goals and you want to be assessing how people met those goals and, and you want to be assessing people on different characteristics of, of performance. It's, you know, in certain roles, it's really easy, right? Sales, right? You know, you have a certain target, you have quotas, you can measure against the quota. It's really easy. You know, someone who's in a customer success account role, certainly you could measure things like retention and, and maybe the net promoter score of the folks who they're interacting with. But there's also the softer side of it, which which in this, in this world that we're in where we, we, we like to measure everything, right? And we have a stat for everything and a metric for everything. It's really easy to dismiss anything that can't be measured as not real, right? But you and I both have emotions and we can't measure those emotions, right? But the real they're real, they're internal. The best doctors have come up with to measure pain in people is to have, ask the patient, how are you feeling on a scale of one to 10? How painful is it? It's a subjective experience, but pain is real, right? So these are things that are hard to measure scientifically, but are real. Same thing happens in your culture. You can feel when you walk into a room and the entire team is buzzing because they're fully engaged and they're excited and they're doing their work. And you can feel when people are checked out. It's really hard to measure that. Did, did you have that feeling in your first company? You said it was a grind. Was there a noticeable yes. difference when you compare 15.5 and that? 
night and day 100%. But, but here's the thing that I also realized is I had created a subculture inside my company. I was the, I kind of held the role of internal operations and CTO and I ran the engineering team and I had this little, you know, kind of corner of the office that was our team. And then we had the broader, you know, the broader team outside of that. And I, I had started to create a culture very much like the origins of what I'm doing here. I would find people who, you know, and this is one of my natural kind of strengths and abilities, I would find people who were overlooked by other organizations who I could see had greater potential. And maybe because they had a gap in their resume or didn't go to the best school or didn't even go to school, they were overlooked by other companies for higher paying jobs. And I'd bring them in, give them an opportunity to do some great work, and then they'd be able to leave and get paid twice what, what I was paying them. And, and, I, and I found great satisfaction and, and fulfillment in that. And I was creating that environment, but it wasn't the broader environment of the company. And it was, it was actually my reason to leave the company was... Uh, happened one day as I woke up and realized, actually, I read an article in Inc., believe it or not, about you can't have two cultures in one company. And I walked into my partner's office and I laid the article down on his on his desk as he read it and he looked up and he said, Wow, that's really insightful. And we both got it. You know, we both got it that we had this is before I realized the important uh, importance of culture and values and alignment of values, especially at the at the partnership and leadership level. Mm-hmm. We had a complete misalignment of values. I'm not saying his way was wrong or it just wasn't mine. And so, so that's how that came about. That was the grind that led to the the dune buggies. But yes. <laughs> that was well, the result. That was not a grind. That was a, that was really fun. Uh, <laughs> But I want to dive into a quick fire round with you. So it's uh, 60 seconds faster, 60 seconds per answer. How does that sound? Sounds great. So having said that, you know, not everything can be measured. Let's do your favorite productivity tools. <laughs> Great. All right. So obviously, I start with our own product 15.5 and 30 minutes every morning. On Monday morning, I'm, I check in with my team of six, which is great instead of having to spend three hours in one-on-ones to do that. Evernote. I'm in Evernote all the time. I'm reading off of you know Evernote all the time. Slack has been huge for us internally. I don't think we, we send email to each other anymore. You know, I run my life off Google Calendar. Probably one of the biggest productivity tools I have is having an amazing assistant. If you're an entrepreneur, even in the early stages, if you don't have an assistant, I think Jack Daly is a thought leader, said once, if you don't have an assistant, you are an assistant. Finding someone who can be proactive that way. I use Insight Timer, which is a meditation timer. And I think if I weren't meditating on a daily basis, I wouldn't be as productive at work. And then the last one is this Best Self Journal, which is a new tool that I've picked up. They have this amazing kind of daily journal to you know focus on gratitude and set your targets for the day and quarterly goals. And it's it's just fantastic. Yeah, brilliant tools that. No, I'm definitely going to do the Insight Timer for sure. And then what do you know now with 15.5 that you wish you'd known when you started? You know, and this is actually part of my own kind of learning and growth, having greater clarity on my own unique abilities and strengths than I did then. I think, you know, early on, you always have to focus on so many different things, but 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 now I'm really clear on the, on the few things that where I can add the highest leverage. And I think for, you know, and that's unique to everybody. So I encourage everyone to really get clear on that for yourselves. And then you've got a spare half hour. What's your favorite SaaS resource? It could be a reading material. It could be a blog. It could be a particular author. What's your favorite reading material in the industry? Yeah, it's a toss-up between Jason Lemkin's Saster stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is fantastic, and David Scott's For Entrepreneurs blog. I mean, if you're just starting out in SaaS, those two resources will give you 90% of what you need to get started. Absolutely. I just had David on the show, actually. He is incredible. Yes. And and a fellow Brit, which always makes me happy. Yes. and then let, let's let's finish the quick fire on your biggest mentor and how it came about. Yeah, that's that's a that's a tough one. I you know 
This is actually for probably for worse. I've never really had a formal mentor, but I but I follow a lot of different thought leaders, and I've been in a number of CEO peer groups, and the peer groups have provided a lot of that introspection and whatnot. You know, I follow I followed various thought leaders. I think some of the ones that come to mind, you know, being Tony Robbins and Tim Ferriss and Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia, the guys over at Buffer, David Scott, Jason Lemkin, and our own investor Christoph Jantz from Point Nine Capital, who's done a lot of good writing on SaaS and and, and others. You know, I look for folks who who really seem to get it and who have produced great things in the world and who I admire. And and then I want to finish today on one of my favorite aspects, and that's the fundraising. Yes. However, yours hasn't been the standard, and although not bootstrapped, you've erred towards the leaner approach. So talk yeah. to me about why you chose this route and which startups you think this route is right. When we started out, for better or worse, I, I wanted to see what we could do in terms of bootstrapping. I, I felt that you know, if I was going to do a friends and family round, which are the people closest to me, which obviously would have the highest risk to their capital, I wanted to have at least some proof points figured out. So we worked nights and weekends and I did consulting and, and we built a rudimentary product and got it into 10 companies. And we didn't we didn't actually go out and ask for any money until we had one person say, you know what, this is really good. I'd actually pay for this. And so it was a little bit of a slower start to get there because of that, obviously. But I felt like it gave us a, a decent foundation. And even then, we only raised about two hundred thousand dollars, twenty five thousand of which was trade for some design services to pretty up the the interface. And we used that to hire one engineer. Again, weren't paying ourselves salary. Actually, got the a quarter million a year run rate on that and, and cash flow positive. So for every dollar burned, we we produced you know more than a dollar in ARR, which is pretty cool. And then raised you know a, a seed round following that. And I think the reason that I've we did that and took a little more space and time was because we really wanted to be deliberate and intentional at building the foundation of the business as something that could be. Here's the frame of mind I was I was taking as we raised each round. I set up the company with the right structure so that someday if we got to that level, we could be a public company. Yet I raised every round as if it was the last money we'd ever take. And understanding that in order for us to do another round, it, it's it's not not just going from series, you know, friends and family to C to A to B to C, just because that's what you're supposed to do and do it as quickly as possible. It was more that you know we would build the company and see you know what is the next opportunity is there is there an opportunity still to build a very big business you know how is the market shaping up how is the company shaping up are we situated on something where we can take that money say a series a financing and we have all of our sales and marketing and and everything dialed in so that we can really just scale and accelerate that rather than just taking money to continue to try to figure things out which startups do you think this is right for then if you apply it to kind of the macro market do you say there's yep. a segment that actually it it's not worthy for because you need a lot of capital was maybe hardware where it's pretty capital intensive and then is there areas where it's actually very appropriate i i think you nailed it there you know with with capital intensive businesses you need capital right so it's silly to to it's silly to undercapitalize yourself in that regard when you're in I would say more broadly, this is more appropriate for companies who are doing something maybe that's even pioneering where there isn't yet a market. If you've got a very hot market and there's clearly going to be one or two category winners and and, and it's heating up, I think it's important to be able to stay on your growth trajectory and, and grow and build as quickly as possible, even if you have to break some things along the way. In our case, we were in a completely 
green open market there actually weren't a lot of competitors it was actually it actually benefited us to go more slowly because if i think if we would raise too ca- too much capital early on there wasn't really even the market yet and and it's only now starting to heat up there's a number of tangential competitors that have raised some decent sized rounds in the last year and we're getting to the place where we may choose to raise a decent sized round because i think the opportunity has actually gotten quite a lot bigger because now there's a there's a bigger market for what we're doing absolutely david it's been such a fantastic pleasure to have you on the show thank you so much for joining me today it really has been brilliant to hear your journey with 15.5 thanks harry it's been great I'd like to say a huge thank you to David and one very much that I believe that he said is focus on your own boat. I've always found you can always make yourself feel better or worse by looking to those around you. So very much agree with the focus on your own boat thesis. Love that. And again, a huge thanks to Josh Hanna at Matrix for the intro today. And do not forget, you have the chance to make your loved one happy this Christmas with Sasta annual tickets. Oh, imagine their face on Christmas Day. And all you need to do is enter the three special words, drinks with Harry, those three words, drinks with Harry, and you'll get the fantastic 20% off the ticket price and tickets to our special mojito party would absolutely love to see you there and as always we so appreciate all the support and cannot wait to bring you our next episode on the 29th and then the usual schedule continues have a fantastic christmas and we so appreciate the support